Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink. Meaning P stands for being persistent. I stands for using your intuition. N stands for networking. And K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Today is October 1st, 2014. I can't believe how fast the year has gone. We've got a great show today. My very special guest is Ernie Vecchio. He's the author of a of a wonderful book, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. He's also a trauma psychologist. And we're going to talk about TED. I don't know how many of you have heard about this, but it's a type trait ego dysfunction, which is in the lines of personality disorder. And um, it's of great interest to me, and I'm sure it will be of great interest to you. So now let's bring Ernie onto our show. Hello, Ernie. Hey, Denise. Thank you so much. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. (laughs) Well, let's start our program out. I want you to tell the audience how you got on the path that you're on today. Well, uh, as you said in the opening, I am a rehabilitation psychologist, a trauma psychologist, and uh, um, I uh, didn't realize at the time that I was getting into the field uh, what a profound experience it was going to be to work with people undergoing uh, extreme trauma because certainly when you're training to be a psychologist, you're not trained to put uh, put the egg back together when it breaks. You know, uh, and and a lot of a lot of the cases that I was seeing at the time that I began my career was like that. I mean, uh, that the the contents of the egg was laying on the floor in front of me in a puddle, and the shell of the individual was broken, and I wasn't trained to put the shell back together. And I, and I discovered over time that that wasn't really my goal. The goal was to to transfer the contents of that egg into another container, and that mm. ended up becoming a pro- that ended up becoming a process of uh, of of learning and growing uh, about the human condition. And so, first of all, kind of understanding what the contents of that egg represented, and it was like the soul and spirit, I think, of the person. But um, mm-hmm. so long story short, I, I, uh, I stumbled into 
into the trauma field after working uh, in the school system and working in the prison system, and uh, and I'm so glad I did because it absolutely changed my life to work with adversity at that level. And it uh, uh, really changed the whole you, path of my career. How did you get involved in the prison system? Well, I just started out. I started out working with juvenile delinquents and hardcore criminals because I used to be one. I used to be a juvenile delinquent. I was a I was a child of the state, and I've had my own no diversity. Kidding. I was. Yeah, I was raised in an orphanage, and uh, and so I oh started out in life. Yeah, I started out in life in kind of a tough spot, and so and so I was comfortable with that population because that's kind of where I started. And um, uh, but but as I but as I began to grow as an individual and as a professional, that that changed inside of me. And uh, and it was a it was a matter of geography. I met my wife, my sweetheart at the time in college, and I ended up moving to her hometown, which I ended then I ended up going into a rehabilitation hospital because of that move, and and the rest of it's kind of history. But but yeah, so it was kind of uh, by accident on purpose. <laughs> it was accidentally on well, purpose. Yeah, but, it just, but I, it I've it always just, it just goes to show you how. Your childhood, your childhood doesn't necessarily have to define you if it's been oh, um, a negative experience. Absolutely, I, I, that, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons why uh, I'm, uh, that I'm talking about this. I'm sure that your listeners haven't heard of Ted because this is my label. This is my baby. Nobody's talking about personality disorder at the level that I'm talking about it. And the reason why is because they think of it as, as the extreme, the extreme, this business of personality disorder, when in truth, everybody walking around has got glitches in their personality. And what trauma has taught me, and I think you've had an experience with this as well with your own, it brings out the best and worst of who we are, uh, adversity. And so, so and so. Yeah, and so what what we have to sort out as human beings is what to do with the worst that it brings out. And what is that? What is that glitch? What is that weakness in our armor? What are we supposed to do with that when it happens? And people that wake up, I think, as a result of adversity, uh, tend to do something with that wake-up moment. Uh, Mm -hmm. But not everybody does. Not everybody does, you know. It it varies. But, yeah, I teach all all the time. I I I have a thought for that. I think people that have a close relationship with their suffering are inherently spiritually inclined people, and because uh, that's ah. my definition of that's my that's my concept of spirituality, which is the pursuit and understanding of adversity and suffering. So, people that are spiritual versus religious, the, uh, the difference is, at least in my experience, is religious people spend their whole lives trying not to go to hell, and spiritual people have already been there. <laughs> so, ah. so I think that there's yeah, so so spiritual people have a close relationship with suffering. Uh, first, their own suffering, and then the suffering of others. And if they if they wake up to that, in, in fact, it turns out to be a gift if they wake up to it. Uh, and many of those mm-hmm. same people, be, I mean, those same people become nurses and doctors and helpers of all mm-hmm. sorts. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I think the uh, the uh, spiritual word for that is empathic. Uh, uh, I think that there's an empathic component to people who take their adversity and make something special out of it. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Okay. Give us an example. In what what respect? The spiritual side. Okay. You mean uh, you mean talk about talk about what aspect? I mean, what what question are you asking me? 
Well, what makes a spiritual person more successful in waking up than a religious uh, person? Uh, okay. Well, I don't want to say religious. Just How about just a spiritual person versus non-spiritual person? Uh, 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 I think what, what happens is is that adversity, at least in my experience of it, is um, it does something to the ego, to the human ego, that most of us uh, don't have a concept of until we're in the middle of it. So first, let's talk about what ego is. And let's first of all talk about what ego is. Most people think of ego as um, either being large and grandiose or small and deflated and inferior. When in actuality, the human ego is more like an onion. And there's layers and layers of defense mechanisms between the, uh, the, the ego and the outside world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I've witnessed in working with trauma is, is that if you came in off the street to talk to me about uh, going through a divorce or you lost your job or you're going through some kind of a external kind of uh, problem, you may let me get down one or two layers of that onion, but you're not going to let me get to the core of who you are. If I cut off your legs, if I give you, uh, if, if I tell you you have cancer, it cuts through all layers, all the layers to the core of who wow. you are. Well, in that moment, in that moment, uh, and it's a wake-up possibility, a bunch of those layers fall away. In other words, all, uh-huh. the things you worried, all the things you worried about, all the things you fretted over, all the fears, all the anxieties, that you, all the things you thought were important, they just kind of fall away. Now it's, I wish I had my legs back. I wish I didn't have this diagnosis. And so mm-hmm. um, I, think, I think spiritual people take that moment and do something with it uh, because that because the because over a period of time the ego closes back up. So the so in other words it's like an opening happens because of the trauma. So you can imagine a shunt being driven through that onion, through all those layers. Well, over time that shunt is pulled out and the onion closes back up. So it's a it's an opportunity in time and an opportunity in the person's life to uh keep to keep that moment, that realization open. It's. Uh, hmm. I guess the word. I guess the word spiritually would be. It's a moment of presence. And if they mm-hmm. decide to stay present with their pain and suffering, then they will. Then they will grow from it. If they decide to go absent again, which is go back into their head and into their fears and their worries, then they're not going to probably grow from the experience. Mm. And and it's going to be more difficult for them. Uh, and at least that's been. At least that's been my experience with it. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but... Um, well, I, I guess when you talked about an individual may decide to be absent, mm-hmm. would that fall under denial? Yeah, certainly. That's, that's, that's part of what it means to be absent, but denial is, is, is the psychology of dealing with something. When I'm talking about absent, I'm saying that you're trapped in your head and you're not in your body at all. Presence means being in your body, fully connected okay. to your senses. You're you're mindful when you're in your body. When you're in your head, you're you're not mindful. You're just cognitive and intellectual and whatever. You're trying to sort okay. out whatever's going on in your brain. Yeah, yeah. Mindfulness hmm. includes the body. Yeah. So, so yeah. So so what happens uh, to a paraplegic, for example, who's paralyzed from the neck down? They ask the question: If I'm not this body, then who am I? If I'm not this body, then what am I? Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's what they have to contend with. 
and they begin to discover that they are so much more than they ever imagined when they look at look beyond their bodies you see and mm-hmm. um and it and it, it 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 becomes a profound experience and it's so different with each individual denise i mean nobody gets to that place of awareness the same way everybody does it uniquely their own way because it's it's built upon their own patterns their own histories their own you know glitches in their armor so to speak mm-hmm. everybody kind of gets it's their own kind of journey which is what makes mm-hmm. it kind of fun I feel a little bit like Indiana Jones when I when I was doing this because I was going on this journey with them, uh, and it was almost like going through trap doors and, and dodging, you know, go, you know, going down for the diamonds and the rubies, if you will, uh, and going through all all of these uh, these tests and trials and holding their hand along the way. It was quite an adventure to do that. No, oh, it had to be. And it changed me forever. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It changed me and grew me forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about type trait ego dysfunction then. Okay. Yeah. What 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 I wanted to bring to uh, into awareness on the on this business of type trait ego dysfunction is is that that there's a lot of stuff going on in the culture that we're struggling with, with uh, the violence and the headlines and 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 whatever, and we're we're pointing our finger at everybody and each other and we're not looking at the the precursor or the the dynamic that sets this up and the dynamic that sets this up is um that i've witnessed between i think it's like 1985 up into the present 19 mm-hmm. i would say 1980 1980 up into the present uh there's a shift in the culture where we move from kind of a guilt orientation uh, to a more shame-based orientation, and so uh, and so and so, what began to happen is we began to start shaming one another at a high level. And the difference between guilt and shame is so is so unique that people don't think about it. They think of it being very similar, but guilt is I made a mistake, and shame is I am a mistake. And so, uh, the compensation for guilt uh, in the culture forever has been religion and religiosity. The compensation for shame is narcissism, which is an yeah. enormous, yeah, which is an enormous amount of compensation uh, that's built on a very fragile, insecure ground. And so we have two or three generations of people, uh, young people in particular, that are being raised in this this energy, if you will, this shame-based orientation, and it begins with type trait ego dysfunction. And what that is basically, type is means that they have difficulty with. Uh, their own self-assessment, and trait means that they have difficulty with interpersonal connections and interpersonal relationships. These are the dynamics that set up personality disorder. If you've got trouble in both of those areas, one or both of those areas, you will have personality disorder. And as you can see, all of us kind of start out there. All of us kind of mm-hmm. start out working that out at some level. So, so. What I want the lay public to know is, is that there was a time in in the culture when you, this was preventable. You uh, you could go to see a psychologist, and they could literally take an X-ray of the insides of this individual through different types of uh, of testing and whatever, and then mm-hmm. you could find you could find the the character disorder and the characterological problems early, and they could be then they could be treated. 
and with counseling and psychotherapy and whatever. And uh, it seems like we've gotten away from that. We've gotten away from the art of doing that, and we certainly have gotten away from the um, the the, um, the habit of doing that. And so now we have, mm-hmm. like I said, two or three generations of kids that are growing up without that kind of inner hygiene, if you will. There's no, they have no inner connection to themselves, no sense of who they are, and they're kind of kind of groping. And as and as a result of that, uh, you've got the the precursor to this dysfunction that I'm describing to you, and and and, well, and all you got to do to see. How does the narcissism? How does narcissism fit into uh, this um, sen- this no well, sense of who you are? Well, because well, because uh, the narcissistic personality uh, is basically an illusion. It's a, it's a it's an exaggerated sense of self that's built upon a false reflection. And and so that false reflection uh, and the inability to, to uh, is built on the idea that you cannot see your own reflection. You see, the only way you can see your reflection is through another human being. And if you are cut off from people, then you can't use people as mirrors. And uh, and so therefore you're stuck in your head. You're trapped in your head with your own sense of self. And without that reflective capability. Uh, then you're in trouble, you see, and that's that's the key of narcissism is they're stuck on their own reflection, without the capacity, wow. to, without the capacity to see themselves. So I mean, the 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 only purpose that people serve to that personality is to is for them to be, um, to be their audience, you know, to be to be someone who, you know, supports everything they say and do, and um, uh, they're not there as a mirror, so to speak. Oh, interesting. Ooh, 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 that's pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I, but, but I think, and but I'm bringing it out to the public because I want because I I have been hearing for the past I don't know five or six years or more, is these these occurrences happen in the culture and they and everybody says you know they they point the finger at the gun problem they point the finger at the mental health problem, when in actuality it's a cultural issue and many of us could be involved in this experience. In other words, we're all we're all involved in the shaping and the forming of of our young people's sense of self and sense of character. Um mm-hmm. and and so it's it's it is the it's it's a big issue. It's a big issue. And what drives this home to me and what makes it special to bring out to me is is that and you know this from your own experience, is is that um these same people can't handle adversity at all. We have That's got the so highest. True. We have the we have the highest uh, we have the highest amount of PTSD uh, in these past two or three wars than any other time in history. Uh, we have the highest amount of anxiety and depression and PTSD in the United States, just based upon normal normal cultural trauma, and people aren't coming out of it very resilient. Uh, we've got a culture that is that is uh, really kind of lost the capacity to. Um, to make a distinction between real and imagined fear, and that that is a a, a low level degree of paranoia. So so I, mm. so I have answers. So I have answers. I guess is what I'm saying to some of these questions that somebody doesn't seem to have answers for, like why we're buying so many guns and and why uh, uh, is there so much craziness going on with our young people? I mean, I actually have valid answers for this, but 
it still it still takes personal responsibility for all of us to step up and say, well, you know, we're instead of pointing the finger, we need to realize that we're all kind of in this together, and um, we all, you know, we all could make a difference, and uh, uh, but we first have got to identify how to do that, and uh, so it what, it's complex. What, and what would be it, what would be the um, shift in our well, culture. Well, well, let's let's just let's talk about cancer for a second, since that's a mm-hmm. since that's near that's near and dear to your heart. Um, mm-hmm. If you get the diagnosis that you have a tumor, uh, or if you find out that you have a tumor, one of the first things that happens is you want to find out whether or not it's benign or not. Well, personality disorder is a tumor. Type two ego dysfunction is a tumor. It can be identified and it can be found if you bother to go and have yourself checked out. And this is what I'm trying to say. This this capability, this art, because it is more of an art than it is a science, mm-hmm. of evaluating, uh, evaluating people's inner lives uh, is something that psychology used to do, but we've gotten away from it, uh, drastically mm. gotten away from it. And uh, and so there's there's fewer and fewer people doing it, and, um, and I think that's that's part of it. School systems around the country have um, have decided to hire school psychologists in the systems. They're no longer using outside consultants, and so as a result, uh, many of the school psychologists are psychometricians. They're not psychologists. They don't have the depth of clinical practice. They don't have the depth of um, of working with patient after patient of all different diverse populations. All these school psychologists do is just psychometrics. So diagnosis or the process of diagnosis has been lost, you see, in the schools. So so the biggest the short answer to your question is prevention is is having your child evaluated early and paying attention to those evaluations and then building in a plan to offset what you discover. Uh at what age? Uh, junior high, no later than junior high school, because that that's when personality is formed between birth and six, and then so in other words, it's like a piece of clay between birth and six. From six mm-hmm. to twelve, it becomes it becomes a hard structure, and then from from twelve up on, it is it becomes a fixed set of patterns and beliefs and whatever. So, so and again, what happens if you undergo adversity is it cracks that container. And you've got to reinvent who you think you are. Well, the, the, the cracking of that container is is breaking the ego down to its rawest form, and that literally is mm-hmm. what, uh, yeah. And so, one of the things I asked myself early in my career is, do we have to have a tree fall on us? Do we have to get? Do we have to be? <laughs> uh, do we have to be told that we have cancer <laughs> to wake up to what's really most important here, and that is to have an inner life, to have a connection to our inner world and how important that is as we do our day-to-day lives. I mean, it's it's invaluable to be connected internally to yourself. Mm-hmm. And it goes it, and it goes ignored in the culture until you get until you get some kind of adversity, some kind of uh some kind of pain or whatever. And so we can we can predict now. We can evaluate children and adults, for that matter, and know exactly where they're going internally, what they're doing, what the blocks are, what the problems are. Mm-hmm. And it isn't all about passing out pills, which is kind of what the culture is doing. We're passing out pills at a, such a high level that it's 
we're missing the forest for the trees on some of this. You can't give somebody a pill for for ego dysfunction. (laughs) So how do you take a narcissistic individual who probably has established that fixed pattern from the time they were 12 and turn Mm. them around? Well, you're not going to turn them around until a tube of four hits them between the eyes. Uh, narcissism is a big problem in our culture, and I think the success rate in personality disorder in general is, I think, 3 to 8% of them are oh changed gosh. by psychotherapy. Really? Yeah. Not, it's, it's, I mean, pretty much any personality disorder, uh, there's a very – which is why they're giving everybody pills to instead of doing psychotherapy. They're just mm-hmm. passing out pills. Um, mm-hmm. The success rate on working with personality disorder is very, very low, which is, mm-hmm. why it's very, which is why it's very critical to get these people early. And so imagine we have two or three generations now of, of, mm-hmm. of ego dysfunction in the culture, but mm-hmm. the, only time we pay, the, the only time we pay any attention to them is in the extreme, is when they have an extreme break. And mm-hmm. then we call it psych- and then we call it psychotic, and then you know, and then we start pointing fingers at who's who's to blame. But uh, it really goes back to the point that the best solution to these things is prevention, and yes. prevention is prevention is possible. There are steps to take to prevent this kind of uh, detachment or this kind of dysfunction, and we've mm-hmm. gotten so far away. We've gotten so far away from it now. It's kind of sad. So I'm trying to, I'm trying with my effort to bring attention to it, but ironically, kind of like you, it's 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 after my work with trauma and adversity that I become aware of this. That 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 I too was asking the question, mm-hmm. and I think you asked this in your book: Why is it some people can get bad news and turn into something special, and some people get bad news and can't do anything with it? Well, the mm-hmm. honest answer is the honest answer is pre-morbid adjustment. Pre-morbid adjustment means where they were before they got the news. I have I can give oh. you an example. I got two, I got two amputees, two uh, sixteen-year-old boys that were amputees. One of them had climbed a telephone pole and got a hold of a live electrical wire and oh. blew his legs blew his legs off above the knee. I know it's horrible. Horrible. The other child was in a car accident. He jumped out of the vehicle going over an embankment, and the door slammed on his legs. Ah. He's also also a double amputee. I got both of these kids sitting in front of me. One of them Mm -hmm. is getting his his GED and going on to college. The other one is taking alcohol and drugs, and he's suicidal. What Mm -hmm. What sets these two kids apart? Where they were before they lost their legs. And I'm telling you that I can tell you where they were before they lost legs. I have a way of taking a picture of their guts in such a way that I can tell you where they were before they lost their legs. Oh my word! And I'm talking, and of course, I'm talking internally where they were. Sure. And so, and so, this is the this is the point. This capability is there, but it is an art that the culture has forgotten about and gotten away from at such mm-hmm. a high level that uh, now it's epidemic. Personality disorder yes. is epidemic in this culture at a high level, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. and so me doing this show with you and me talking on my show is is partly to bring this to people's attention, but also it, it doesn't it isn't as uh, horrible and awful as it sounds. This business of taking a look at your inner life, it's actually mm-hmm. quite an adventure. It's, it's quite an adventure to to do that, and. Um, 
How is that in done? Fact, what, to take a picture of your inner life? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have exercises and different things that I put people through. It, it, it really just depends upon the person. I kind of meet them where they are. But, I mean, I have... I have projective instruments and projective tests that I use that psychology has as a profession, but I also okay. have some exercises and some things that I have come up with. But a lot of dream, I do a, I do a lot of dream work with folks as well, which is quite revealing. Uh, but but when you're talking about children, you're, you're limited on on what techniques you can use. Mm-hmm. But you but mm-hmm. you have to, but you have to also know what you're looking for, Denise. That's very important, and uh, and it takes. It takes thousands of administrations, literally thousands of, of, of administrations of these instruments to know how to use them and use them proficiently and to use them responsibly. And uh, and that's what we have gotten away from, it seems, um, as a culture and as a profession. Yeah. Listeners, if you've just joined in, we're talking with Ernie Vecchio. Vecchio, yes. Vecchio. Yes. And um, those Italian names. I know. He's a trauma <laughs> psychologist, and we're talking about type trait ego dysfunction. Why don't you tell the listeners um, about your book, the title of your book, and um, why you wrote it? Well, I've got a couple books that I've written. The Soul's Intent is uh, uh, is the book that I wrote a couple years ago that uh, I think I told you before that uh, has to do with a bunch of dream content that I used and about 200 of my patients. I've treated 10,000 10, patients in my career, Denise, and about oh. 6,000 6, of those I've been intimately involved with, their recovery. So I've, I've d- been doing this for 30 years. I've been doing this a long time. And, uh, and, so, and so the soul's intent came out of a lot of the dream content of my patients and I wrote it in such a way that the ego, the human ego, was discussing with the soul uh, uh, how to handle adversity, how to how to achieve presence, uh, how to recover uh, from trauma, and so that's what the soul's intent's about. Okay. And I wrote another book called an, an, another book called The Astonishing Dream of Job, and I did that because I discovered that many of the people coming into my hospital were having a spiritual crisis. It didn't make any difference whether they were. Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, agnostic, atheist, it didn't seem to matter. They were all in, a, in some kind of a spiritual crisis. And so I took the Job story and, and uh, I took it over to Belize with me for a couple months and I interpreted the entire 42 chapters as, oh if, he was dreaming, as if he was having mm. a dream. And so the name of the book is The Astonishing Dream of Job. And it turns out that all 10,000 of my patients uh, went through the same thing Job went through. So the Job story is about a cathartic awakening based upon trauma. And uh, oh my gosh. so 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 it really tells us how to suffer. The Job story actually tells us how to suffer. There's a there's actually a a a, 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 a way to suffer that's healthy. <laughs> and uh it's actually it, it, it's actually in the story. So those are the two books and then I have another one that's tied to gift of compassion therapy. So I have a whole therapy around this that uh that came out of my work. When you find all the time to write all these books. <laughs> well, it's been well, it's been it's been over the past uh 8 years that I've written these books. Uh, my last book was in 2012, I guess. Yeah, so it's been 2 years ago, which was the which was the Job book. The Soul's Intent was written mm-hmm. a couple years before that. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I've kind of slowed down on the writing. I've written uh a, a couple textbooks 
on gifted compassionate therapy. And my website, uh, which which is about intentional guided evolution, I came up with that language because what I discovered was that, and I said this to you off the air, that when I was dealing with people's traumas, something inside of them was pulling them into the present in spite of their ego's resistance to that. And mm-hmm. so I had to figure out what that something was, and uh, and so I speak about that in, in my work, and that's literally what I teach people. Uh, is, is, is So intentional guided evolution means growing on purpose, just a fancy way of saying growing on purpose, and, and in this case, growing from adversity, and, and really putting the the heart is the compass because another thing that I, I left out when I was talking about type tra- type trait ego dysfunction is is that what happened in the 80s besides the shift from guilt to shame is we substituted the ego as the default compass in the culture. And so, uh, which means we've kind of removed the human heart as the compass. And mm. so what I do, what I do in my work is put people back in touch with that heart-centered approach versus egoic approach. And um, and so it's yeah. So that's the that's the key well, of what. There's uh, you know, in our society today, we're being desensitized mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Absolutely. Yes, it's scary. a problem. It, it's a problem, and that's part of that's part of what personality disorder is: is a detachment from one's own humanity, and that desensitization uh, lays the groundwork for us to go inside ourselves. And again, without reflecting, uh, we can't see what we're doing inside ourselves. And so we're really just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. And, uh, and, and so the baby boomers, which I'm a gener- I'm in that generation, you know, we've got this wonderful wealth of wisdom out here. And, uh, uh, but, we don't have a lot of young people looking to our senior citizens for guidance, and this is a this is an issue that uh, when you consider there's 84,000 plus teenagers in this country, which which far exceeds the boomer population, they outnumber us by that much. Uh, mm-hmm. And you saw and you saw what the boomer generation did, uh, all the wonderful things they did, and all the horrific things they did. They were a powerful force to be dealt with. Well, this group of young people is lost. They're totally clueless. And it's it's what's kind of scary is these are the leaders of our future and these are the people that are going to be in charge of our culture. And they are detached, desensitized, dysfunctional in many respects. And uh and so again, this is why I'm trying to bring this to people's and people's mm. awareness. Because it is you almost, we, you, you almost wonder if it's going to take a a huge human world event to change things. Well, if I take if I take my career, it, it will take it will take a trauma. Uh, it will take a, a a major shift. But but you know, and we've already undergone some of this with the collapsing of the economy and with the terrorist stuff that's happening. But the the interesting part of that, though, Denise, is, is that that we've we've become afraid of being afraid, and that is a problem. Because fear actually has a function, and when you can't tell real fear from imagined fear, you, you're you're stuck. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I joke with people all the time and tell them that we forgot the story of the three little pigs because the answer to much of this is in the three little pigs. <laughs> that the stall, the uh, straw sticks to bricks that they run to in those houses. 
this is the this is the developmental understanding of what to do with fear and uh and and so we've we've become a culture of people living in houses of straw and sticks <laughs> and very few of us are living in brick homes which is why we're buying so many weapons uh and and so it's an internal problem uh it's an internal problem you don't get security by going out and buying a thousand guns you mm-hmm. get security you get security internally and if you don't have it then again you're stuck I mean, look at what we used to do when we were kids, uh, at least what I used to do when we were kids. We used to get under the desk in case of an atomic war. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and how funny is that today? We used to get under the desk. And so it was this illusion of security, an illusion of safety. Uh, and well, we're doing are, the same those thing. Those were drills that they had the children do. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? And how insane is that? I mean, if mm-hmm. the atomic bomb goes off, you would turn to dust. I don't think getting out of the desk would make any difference. And so, <laughs> and so, it, it's it's the same thing that we're doing today. We're giving people the illusion of security, mm-hmm. and we're looking mm-hmm. and we're looking outside for it, rather than inside for it. Mm-hmm. And we got we we got to find it inside ourselves. And this is the again, this is the the this is fertile ground for type trait ego dysfunction, or this is fertile ground for personality dysfunction, and that's. What we are witnessing is what we're experiencing, and um, so. I read the st- statistics that one out of three has some form of disorder, yes. mental disorder. It's probably one out even of higher. Yeah. It's probably even higher. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you consider that 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 statistic is coming from the Mental Health Association, those are the people that have been identified. Uh, the general population is walking around with an enormous amount of uh, dysfunction disorder. Mm-hmm. They just don't. They just mm-hmm. don't know it. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do, all you all you have to do is look at general physicians and and ask them how much how many antidepressants are passing out and how many anti-anxiety medicines mm. are passing out. It's, mm. it's an enormous amount. Scary. Uh, so, yeah, so so we are a medicated society. Well, what are we medicating? Well, we're medicating fear. And depression, if you want to make a pie called depression, <laughs> there are two ingredients in that pie. It's fear and anger. Mm-hmm. If you're going to make paranoia, it's fear and guilt. Well, if you were gonna if you're gonna uh, make uh, self-loathing and self-hatred, it would be fear and shame. So these these um, conditions that we're all we all walk around with a little bit of this. Every one of us uh, has this in our in our personality at some level. We all learn how to compensate and to move on in spite of it and grow hopefully mm-hmm. from it. But we become more and more a um, uh, a pill-based culture and addictions at a high level. Uh, so yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's just terrible. But the but the good news is the good news is that it doesn't have to stay this way. That there actually is right. uh, there actually is a way to prevent it. And 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 even if you're involved in hearing this radio show, you don't have to stay stuck in your stuff. You know, mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. you, you know it's it's the old what is the old story mirror mirror on the wall. You know, all mm-hmm. you have to do is look in the mirror and be honest with yourself. The the cool thing about being present, having a spiritual connection or a spiritual ground to something larger than yourself, is is that mm-hmm. um, you can't do self deception anymore. That's the cool mm-hmm. thing about adversity. Adversity that you think 
puts us in touch with that, that we can't do self-deception anymore, that we have to kind of be honest with ourselves about who we are mm-hmm. and why we are. Yeah. And uh, so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that, right. that I'm saying to people, that, that I'm saying to people, we need to take a hard look at ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, in fact, can imagine life any other way because that's just who I've always been. I mean, when I was when I was nine years old, Denise, I looked up at the sky and I said, "God, if you exist, you've got a sixth sense of humor." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, and Satan, if you exist, sign me up. I'm in. You know. And people used to ask me later on in my life if if I believed in the devil, and I said I was born in hell, never met the guy, but I saw God all over the place. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think that that's – and that's what I mean about spiritual. I was nine years old, and I was having that kind of self-reflective moment. I mean, come on. I mean, uh, what are nine-year-olds reflecting about today? I mean, I had the time to have that kind of self-reflective moment, and I was in an orphanage at the time. They're texting. Yeah, they're texting. Not even having conversations face-to-face any longer. Oh, absolutely. It's crazy. It really is crazy. And so, and so, yeah, so this is my little effort, my, my little tiny voice in the distance to say to the world that's listening that um, if you care about uh, your young people, if you want answers to some of these questions that the media doesn't seem to be answering about violence, about guns, about, about why our kids seem to be so lost, I have some valid answers for this, and, and but I also have some valid solutions as well. And uh, and mm-hmm. you know, yes, and yes, it's a process, and yes, it isn't. There isn't a magic pill for any of it. Uh, it is focused attention. It is responsibility. It's, it's all those things. But this is this is part of the problem. We we lack a lot of integrity in some of this stuff. And and this is I'm trying to in my final years in my profession to kind of bring some integrity back to this. Uh, it's been very painful for me to come out of the hospital. I came out of the hospital in 2006, Denise, and I was in mm-hmm. my own world. I, I spent 30 years on the unconscious of suffering people. It was mm-hmm. very awakening for me to come out into the culture and see how many people are asleep. They've got their legs. They've got their spinal cord. They've got their vision. They're not head injured. They're not traumatized, but yet they are asleep in their lives at such a level that I could not believe. And so, mm-hmm. it blew me mm-hmm. away when I came out and when I came out and saw that. And uh, so, mm-hmm. since 2006, I've been trying to say to people, "Wow, you know, life is so much more profound than this." And uh, people ask me all the time, "What's the benefit of the work uh, of working with me?" I say, "Well, what if I tell you that I can make the blues bluer and the greens greener?" Would you want to come and talk to me? <laughs> because mm-hmm. that that literally that literally is the result of waking up uh, and and finding some meaning and purpose in your life, just beyond survival, just basic day to day survival, which is what a lot of people are stuck in. Right. Well, you know, if you can change one life at a time, oh, then yes. slowly you can raise the level of consciousness. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's what I feel like I spent. I spent a career doing it, but I'm more focused now uh, in a different, mm-hmm. a little bit of a different direction. Yeah, but um, I'm mm-hmm. not working with trauma cases anymore. Now I'm doing more life coaching, more teaching, and mentoring. And in fact, a lot of the people in my com- in my community consider me a therapist. Therapist, so I work with a lot of people that are that are in their own work, growing and and oh, mentoring, up, which is which good. is a lot of fun. Yeah. 
No, that's 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 a great thing to do. And you're and you're in California, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd love to, I would love to do something in California. I haven't had a chance to come out there yet, but uh, I'd love to come out there and do something. But uh, I, I tell people all the time that uh, that I care about this so much that if if you just pay my room and board, I'll come and I'll come and speak. Uh, I, I care about <laughs> what I've learned. I mean, I, I care so much about what I've learned uh, about about adversity and people coming back from trauma that I want to share it with other people. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a lot more than I'm, it's a, so much more than I'm able to talk about in this brief time with you. It is. A lot of stuff that is quite valuable to talk about. And so, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, so. we'll definitely have to um, maybe figure something out next year. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do something like that because I'm mm-hmm. I'm making that offer on my radio show all the time. That uh, that and I and I've gone around this part of the country, but I haven't been on the West Coast hardly at all. So mm-hmm. um, I'd love to come out there and do something. It'd be fabulous. Great. Let's talk a little bit about um, cultural distortion, and that's in relation to the healthy, compassion side of people versus the unhealthy. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I discovered, uh, and this is so profound, Denise, and I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you this, but one of the things that you do as a psychologist is you do intelligence testing. Uh, when you do a psychological examination of somebody, you 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 tend to want to know what their what their their intellect is. Well, mm-hmm. one of the one of the vocabulary words on the intelligence test is compassion. Mm-hmm. I discovered I discovered in working with severe trauma that there was a theme of how we were defining compassion in this culture. And again. I'm talking 10,000 patients, so I think I think mm-hmm. I think it's enough of a sample to say that this is valid. Uh, probably about 72, 73 percent of them find compassion is sacrifice and martyrdom. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, and that of course comes out of the Christian concept that, that Christ died for us versus died with us, and so their definition of compassion was to suffer for another human being, just like just like Christ. When in actuality, compassion means to suffer with. Now, what's profound about that, that distortion, is, is that um, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal, suffering for versus suffering with. Well, suffering for is victim. Suffering, uh-huh. with, is trans- suffering with is transformation. So, so, mm-hmm. uh, so we have got a, beside the, um, the ego being made the default compass uh, in the past 20-some-odd years, We've also got the concept of compassion distorted. We think it means to suffer for, to carry mm. suffering for others. Mm. And and you see this in the helping profession she when they talk about burn. Yeah, well, and you see it in the helping profession when they talk about burnout. Doctors have this a lot, and nurses have it. It's called compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been doing I've been doing this for a hundred years. I've never felt one ounce of burnout in what I do. Not a day mm-hmm. of burnout ever. That's because I know what compassion is. I suffer with my patients. I don't suffer for them. Mm-hmm. And so and so that distortion is a big deal. And so, again, back to the extreme examples in the culture, what are these people doing when they go out and commit these horrendous crimes? They then turn the gun on themselves. You mm-hmm. will not know me. You will not know me in life, but you will know me in death. Ah. So that martyrdom, so the martyrdom and sacrifice is there, you see. Even in the examples, and so that cultural distortion of compassion 
and the ego is the default compass. Those are two big things that uh, that came through. And it didn't seem to matter um, what belief system people were were under, whether it, like I said, whether it was Christian or non-Christian or religious or non-religious. They all seemed to have this um, this idea that com- that they've been living the wrong kind of life and they're being and, and that they're being punished. Gee. And that's what that's they're. So that's why the advert. And that's why the adversity happened to them, yeah. But have you not experienced that in, in working with other cancer patients, that they go through a period of um, of why me and it must be something that I brought on myself? Uh, I mean, because that's kind of a normal thing. Well, it's a, it's, well, it's just like in grief. Hmm. Well, there's a, there's a pattern where um, from the moment of diagnosis, you go into denial. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's a subconscious thing. Some people come out of it within four months. Some come out of it within six. The problem with it is if they have a severe case, they're in denial and making choices on treatment protocols becomes very difficult for them. They they typically will ask somebody else to make those decisions for them. Yes. And that's when a lot of times it doesn't turn out well. Mm, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know what you're saying. Denial, and certainly, you know, it's it's kind of like the grief process. Uh, you know, you you go through what is it? Shock, anger, uh, mm-hmm. disbelief. Uh, I forget the, the the five stages of grief. But I think that the point is that somewhere in that in that moment of realigning uh, how you think and how you feel about what you're experiencing, uh, you're you're looking up at the sky and going, "Why me?" And uh, I found it quite curious that that a lot of people uh, uh, blame themselves or punish themselves in some way for living the wrong kind of life and uh, or for not being stronger mm-hmm. or not being mm-hmm. better people. I just thought that was a fascinating thing. And and so they said, and I said to them, I said, well, you know, God actually has two faces. And they go, really? I said, well, is the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament? Which God are you talking <laughs> to? You know, and, and clearly they were talking, they were talking to the God of the Old Testament, and so. So it, again, that's of course I am in an area of the yeah. country where the Bible Belt is quite is quite huge. So it's sure. there's a lot of there's a lot of religion where I am. But uh, but mm-hmm. but I thought it was curious that it really was across all different all different belief mm-hmm. systems. It wasn't just it yeah. wasn't just uh, in one. And, yeah. And it's something that I I say a lot. We have a choice. We can choose mm-hmm. something negative, or we can choose something positive to think Absolutely. about. Absolutely. And to work on, it's either it's not really uh, you know there really isn't any middle ground there. (laughs) Right. Well, we have run out of time. This has been a stimulating conversation. I think our listeners are just amazed with our interview today. Again, why don't you tell the listeners where your website is? the um, name of your books and your program and how they can reach you. Okay. Uh, The name on my website is just my name. It's E-R-N-I-E-V-E-C-C-H-I-O dot com. Uh, And you can contact me through there. Plus, I'm also on Blog Talk as well. And the the, the name of my show is The Soul's Intent. It's Monday nights at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And uh, 
uh, and that's the way you reach me. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm doing a fair amount of coaching and mentoring of people that are doing spiritual work, but I'm also trying to uh, talk about adversity and talk about personality uh, problems and dysfunction in the culture because it's, I won't say it's near and dear to my heart, but I, I'm just getting tired of seeing the headlines every day. And sure. Everybody's saying, sure. And everybody's saying, you know, what's the answer? What's the answer? Well, I actually have some valid answers. I, I don't have a lot of people that are reaching out to me for those answers, but I think I wrote I wrote uh, CNN and I wrote some people uh, uh, last year with some answers. And again, it's like it's like I'm a I'm sure I'm a needle in a haystack of people <laughs> that are responding. To it. So you need to get yourself. Uh, a publicist. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, you know that's part of one of my weaknesses. Maybe you can identify with this, but as many books as I have written and stuff, I don't have the personality. I'm probably the hardest part is the whole self-promoting piece. I'm not real fond of self-promotion. Mm-hmm. I'm a little I'm a little uncomfortable with it. And um, um, but it's but so this is my stab at that. What little bit of radio I do and what little bit of writing I do is my it's my effort at self-promoting. So. Um, well, in closing, in closing, Ernie, I just want to tell you, you are a gift. Well, thank you so much, Denise, and so are you. I mean, I I, I said off the air to you that uh, I thought we had a connection because uh, of your relationship with adversity in your own life and how you've overcome it and how and what you're doing with that experience. It's no different than what I'm doing, my adversities and my experiences. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, you, mm-hmm. you and I both are kind of trying to give it away now and trying to share it with other people, and that's uh, – I say all the time that it, what what is self-esteem and self-worth – you're not supposed to put it in a coffee can and bury it out back. <laughs> you're supposed to share it with others. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, that's right. And so that's well, kind of what I'm supposed so to do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for well. being with us today. Take thank care. Uh huh. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, listeners. Um, please uh, tune in again for our show in, in two weeks' time. I want to thank you all for supporting our show and for learning. That's what this is all about. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? want to remind you that the entire contents of this radio show is based upon the opinions of Denise and her guest. It's not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified health care professional of your choice. And it's not intended as medical advice. We're sharing information, knowledge from our guest and our community. We encourage you to make your own health care decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified health care professional of your choice. Thank you, and bye-bye.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.